0: you'll turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21. Also really want to encourage all of you to be uh, participating in the prayer time today. There and I'll be leading during the Sunday school hour. I don't know about you. Uh, when the Bible talks about wrestling and prayer, I, I very much um, identify with that. I, find, I have to be honest with you, I find praying exhausting. It's, I mean, I don't, sometimes I'll be praying with people and they'll fall asleep, I don't think I've ever done that. I, I feel like it's a fight. You know, I mean, that's, that's the way it's talked about, right? In the Bible, it's talked about like a wrestling match. And, and so I, I know that it requires some effort. And uh, so, but it also is critically important for the advancement of the kingdom and the prosperity of the true prosperity of the church. And so I really want to encourage you to participate in that today. And also we do have this um, visitation uh, class and, For those of you who are interested in ministering to people in our church, you just can't make it, you know, for various reasons, and uh, people enjoy uh, somebody visiting them. So I encourage you to do that as well. All right, so we are in Revelation chapter twenty-one. We are really turning the corner here in this chapter, and uh, we're only looking at two verses today, but it's chock full: new heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem. So we're just going to read Revelation 21, verses 1 and 2. Hear now the Word of God. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband." Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that we would be able to understand why you, by your spirit, gave this message through Christ to John for those churches, and that to the extent we find ourselves in similar situations, that we would take the great comfort that is found here and recognize that it is for us as well. So we do pray that you would help us to grasp and enjoy very deep and rich things, eternal things, things that human words can hardly express. We do pray, Father, though, to the best of our ability, we would understand what you would have us know. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. David S. Clark of this turn in Revelation wrote this. He wrote, at the beginning of chapter 21, we arrive at the watershed that divides time and eternity. The writer proceeds in this long passage to disclose the glorious abode and beatific destiny of those whose names were written in the book of life. Our story, therefore, leads us beyond The confines of this world or this age are earthly affairs to view things in a vastly different condition from anything we know here. The heart of the church has ever beat in response to this revelation of its heavenly home. No sin, no sorrow, no pain, no death. Where can such unearthly features find a place? When I was in college, I played two sports. In reflection, I realized something as I looked back that I uh, I kind of created a defense mechanism for myself by by being on more than one team. If my if my performance waned in in one sport, and I don't I'm not saying I did this Consciously, it was kind of subconscious. So, if I was doing poor in one sport, I took comfort in the notion that like, I had the other sport. I mean, with the two sports, it was Army State track and, and volleyball. And if I was doing poorly in track, I'd be like, you know what? But I'm better in volleyball than every guy in the track team. <laughs> <laughs> and if I was doing poor in volleyball, I was like, uh, you know. I'd say I'm better in track than anybody on the volleyball team. And if I was doing four in both, I'd be like, well, I do play two sports. <laughs> and I had some way of like, handling it psychologically. Now, I'm not here advocating splitting one's devotion. I'm not saying that's a good way to approach it. It's just an observation of how one might secure in a, an identity when things aren't really going well. Like we're going, okay, how do, I, how do I psychologically navigate through this? How do I find significance in who I am? Where do I find direction in what's going on in life? And as a college student, those are big deals at that age. I remember just wrestling through that kind of stuff when I was a teenager in my early 20s. So I'm not advocating kind of going, well, just involve yourself in enough things that you can find comfort here, 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 and here. What I am advocating, though, is securing an identity in that which cannot be disturbed. Building one's house, as it were, upon a rock. Now, at the writing of this letter, the writing of Revelation, the hub of religious significance was deposited... In Jerusalem, there was a deep sense of religious identity associated with being a citizen of Jerusalem. I mean, if you read your Bibles from Genesis to Revelation, it's Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. But Jerusalem had descended into a city that Jesus taught kills the prophets. He's weeping over that city. And and at the writing of the Revelation, the judgment of Jerusalem was nigh. The judgment of Jerusalem was coming soon. Now let me just say, you know, this idea of kind of enjoying being part of Jerusalem, I don't think it's necessarily bad. I think there are certain things that can be good, in their proper context and at their proper level, patriotism, I think, can be a good thing. I mean, you know, there, there's it's a hot topic right now. You know, nationalism and what have you. School spirit. I think school spirit could be a good thing. You know, you wear the colors of your school, your sweatshirt or whatever it is. Prioritizing. And valuing your family, being very much into your family, obviously is a good thing. I think commitment and devotion to your business, to be somebody who's dedicated to your workplace, is a good thing. But any one of those good things can become an idol. It can become the most important thing in your life. I I can't tell you how many lunches I've had with people who are unbelievers, and they'll say something like, family is everything. And at some level, I appreciate that, but that is just not true. I mean, Jesus, you know, it's almost controversial when Jesus was told, your mother and family are outside, and he's like, who is my mother? Who is my family? It's like some some people think that even sounded disrespectful. I don't think it was. I think he's making a point that anything, even your own family, as valuable as that is, can become an idol. Your nation can become an idol. Your workplace can become an idol. Your school can become an idol, And I'm bringing that up because I think that's what was happening with Jerusalem. Great promises were made to Abraham in terms of his progeny, in terms of his descendants. Out of Abraham, we would have this nation, right? Israel. And the heart of Israel would be Jerusalem. And when you're reading the Old Testament, you're seeing God making great promises in relationship to that. But a misguided understanding of what it meant to be a child of Abraham, an improper understanding of what that actually meant, became a source of great darkness. It became a source of spiritual destruction. Now keep in mind here, this is is a promise, this isn't a school or a nation or a workplace, This is a religious environment. It's Abraham. It's Israel. It's Jerusalem. And they're like going, well, wait a minute. Should I not take comfort and find my identity in the fact that I'm an Israelite? But John the Baptist turned the burners up on people who took an undue comfort in that ethnicity, in that physical Progeny, in that citizenship, the mere citizenship of Jerusalem. We see it early on in Matthew. He says, And do not think to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Like, why would he even say that? The fact that he would say that meant that they were taking an undue Comfort or peace or power or authority in the fact that they were somehow related to Abraham. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. You see, one is hard pressed to find a city or really any geographical location in the Bible that receives as much attention as Jerusalem. You're, if you don't understand Jerusalem, you're not going to understand the Revelation. The Revelation talks all about Jerusalem, but Jerusalem, and we need to understand this, and all of the religious structures in Jerusalem, all the artifacts in Jerusalem, all the ceremonies revolving around Jerusalem, all the rituals that took place in Jerusalem, were merely pedagogical. And what that, what I mean by that is they were, they were there to get us to learn about something else. They, they were designed to get us to think about something beyond Jerusalem. To focus on Jerusalem is like looking at the photo of a loved one who's moved away. You know, you got a child who's gone to college, right? So you got a picture of them. Or maybe your spouse has been deployed. And you have a picture of them. And that picture, that picture should help you remember them. That picture should help you love them. That picture should remind you of them. But the picture shouldn't supplant them. Right? You, you, if, when that person shows up, when, when your spouse who is deployed shows up, you need to stop looking at the picture. Right? When your student comes home from college, you got to look at them. By the way, that's what Hebrews was all about. It was all about everybody was more into the, 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 that which was designed to teach about Christ than they were into Christ. Jerusalem and its temple at this point in history were just getting in the way. And and it was about to be destroyed. I mean, the author of Hebrews says it is obsolete and it's vanishing away. That old covenant that revolved around the temple, it's obsolete and God was going to get it out of the way. It had become a distraction. And by the way, because it's probably not true of you and me, like we, you know, unless you're really into you know going to Jerusalem or something like that. We probably don't think about Jerusalem that much in terms of a distraction, but it goes beyond Jerusalem to the entire created order. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And also there was no more sea. I, I, I noticed this morning, by the way, when I was looking through my notes that I didn't really talk about no more sea. And I know there are a lot of people who, in our church who surf, and they're like, hey, what's up with that? I mean, and I, I really enjoy the sea myself. I mean, I used to surf. I don't anymore. But I, go, I try to go down there. But, and I, I, do, I do tend to think that in the Bible, the sea... Was not associated with um, surfing, <laughs> but it was associated with like turmoil. And so I, not you know, to what extent the new heavens and the new earth will or will not have a sea or a sun or hat? I don't think that you guys who surf need to or girls who surf need to get all worried <laughs> about it. But move on. Moving on to deeper things. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So the first heaven, because I've been talking about Jerusalem, but here we see it's become universal, right? You, you're not addressing merely Jerusalem. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away. You see, the, this fallen world is its own distraction. Keep in mind, the recipients of this letter, they were going through all sorts of difficulty, either from the Roman Empire or from Jerusalem, and and they're kind of of getting caught up in it. And, And this is written to them in such a way as to get them to be able to navigate through the fact that the world was kind of letting them down. And so what they're, what they're reading here is, no, this stuff that is bothering you, it's passed away. And there's a new heaven and a new earth. Now, you know, uh, Jason had mentioned that, you know, in our prayers before coming out here, I will oftentimes pray about, that we would all recognize that in this very unique consecrated gathering called church not because of the building or anything else but when God's people gather together in this special way where we have word and sacrament and the praise of God together there's something very otherworldly about that because we are joining with the church victorious in this worship I mean we're not just here alone all they're all we're engaging in something that is is both happening here, but celestial as well. So so we've got our focus upon this new heavens and this new earth. But when we we start talking otherworldly, we need to be careful that we're not saying in that that we don't care for the world or care about the world. That's not what we're saying. We, we should not read our Bibles in such a way as to advocate some type of continual, other worldly floatiness. I remember when I was a kid, every year we'd watch the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston. And after he had, you know, his encounter with God, you know, on, on the mountain, he came down and You know, he would walk around with this like glare, like on his face, like like he's he was otherworldly, and he was almost incapable of having a communication with because he was just always looking like he was in a trance. And I I understood C. B. DeMille's point when he was saying, "Look at Charles Chuck," he's Chuck Heston. You got to really look like you had an encounter with God. What would that look like? Well, it would look like nothing else matters, and I'm kind of zoned into whatever he was looking at up there. You know? Because people do that, right? They'll be like, you're like well, what, is he, what are they looking at up there? So we shouldn't have this otherworldly floatiness taking place. What we should be careful of is not having our hope in this world. We've got to have this continual reminder that my peace, my hope, is not attached to the old earth, the old heaven, which has passed away. The recipients of this letter, and I would argue Christians ever since, need continual reminders of a new heaven and a new earth. We need to always think that way. We can't stray too far from recognizing that our true identity is found in the citizenship in the new heaven and the new earth. Now, I'm not going to engage in all the speculation orbiting around the nature of this transition, because I think in Revelation 20, they really are kind of going, look at this is the consummation. This is the end of history. This is, you know, the, the real focus here in chapters 21 and 22, I do believe are kind of like going, it's a fully orbed presentation of heaven. The, the full, as we understand heaven, the fullness of heaven. But I, but I think it's important for you to understand a little bit of the debate here. And I'll just, I guess I'll just put it this way. I don't think the consummation, and by the consummation we're talking about the end of of history as we know it and the beginning of eternity as we know it. I don't think what happens here is the, the utter destruction of all things and God creating everything ex nihilo, out of nothing, the way he did when he first created the heavens and the earth. I don't think that's what he's talking about here. I think we need to probably think about it more along the lines of our own death, and resurrection, that, that, that there is a time in the future we will die, and our spirits go to be with the Lord, and there's a time at the end of history when our souls, our spirits, are joined with our, the self-same bodies with which we died, right? And so God gives us new resurrected bodies, but he doesn't create them ex nihilo, it's not a new creation, it's not out of nothing. There's something very deep about that. I think there's something very almost mysterious about that. But it's not as if God is creating new people. He is resurrecting old people. And they become new people. And I think Paul in Romans compares us as individual Christians groaning for our redemption that is found in Christ to the entire created order groaning for its redemption that is found in Christ as well. And so all that to say, I think this idea of you know, the new heavens and the new earth in its full consummation is the idea of God not creating things brand new, but restoring that which was destroyed by the first Adam, which is all renewed in Christ, the second or last Adam. We can ask, you can ask me more about that during Q&A, which we're not having today. <laughs> but here's where I want to go a little bit with this. Because in a certain sense, in a certain sense, and that's it's a big phrase in logic, right? This new heavens and this new earth has already begun. We, we are already called, in 2 Corinthians 5.17, some of your versions will say new creatures, but it actually is, in the Greek, we are a new creation. If you're in Christ, right now you are a new creation. In a certain sense. I mean, you know, when I mentioned that when we gather together, we're worshiping with the church victorious, Right? In a certain sense, Christians are already seated with Christ. Right? Ephesians 2.6, that God has raised us up together. Like, it almost sounds like a resurrection, doesn't it? He has raised us up and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's in the aorist tense. It's in the past tense. That's just, this has already happened to you. Old Testament references to the new heavens. I'm going to make a little argument here, if you don't mind. Old Testament references to the new heavens and the new earth are difficult to read in such a way as to consign it entirely to the consummation. Now, again, you understand what I mean when I say consummation? I'm talking, you know, the consummation is the end of human history and eternal state. That is, at that point, you have the, the consummation. I just so you understand the language here. And what I'm saying is, it's hard to read the new heavens and the new earth as entirely and only referencing that which takes place at, after the end of history. It's hard to read it that way. And let me give you an example of why, because what we see it primarily in, first in, is Isaiah 65 17. So the first reference to the new heavens and the new earth is found in, i written 600 years before the time of Christ, and we see that I'm going to create a new heavens and a new earth. And as that new heavens and new earth is being described, we read this, verse 20 of chapter 65, no more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. So I remember wrestling through this, and I don't know how much you guys wrestle through stuff like this, because here's the deal. The, um, the premillennialist will say Isaiah 65 is talking about the millennium after the second coming. Okay, that Jesus came, and you got this thousand-year millennial period One of the big problems with that is there's nowhere, anywhere in the text, anywhere near, that's saying that this happens after the second coming. That's just an imposition on it. You're just going, this is the way I believe, and so that's where this fits. But if you read Isaiah, you're not going to find that anywhere in Isaiah. The amillennialists, who are a lot closer to what we think as the well what I think. We have all millennialists in our church, and we love them dearly. <laughs> but the all-millennial position is, no, this is a description of the eternal state. Can, but can you see a problem with that? If this is speaking metaphorically of the eternal state, it's not a very good metaphor. It is difficult, because it says... The young person will die at how old? A hundred. Here's the deal. It's difficult for a metaphor of death to mean anything other than death. People don't die in heaven. When we go to heaven, there's going to... So you can see where I'm looking at that going, boy, this is just not working. This is there is a sense in which we have to recognize that the new heavens and the new earth has already begun. In a certain, I'll put it this way, unconsummated sense, we are currently living in the new heavens and the new earth. We are a new creation. You are a new creation. Citizens of the new heaven and new earth It's that other team that you're on. When things aren't going well on this team, don't think about the track team. Don't think about work. Don't think about your school. I mean, when you're kind of going, wow, who am I? What's my identity? What's my strength? Where's my direction? And on and on. What you need, where your mind needs to go is to the new heavens and the new earth. It needs to go to that eternal citizenship and not allow yourself to get too wrapped up in the fact that this world, which I do think we should care about, this world that I do think that we should kind of work with and in is simply not our identity. Your identity needs to be something deeper and richer and eternal. Now, the recipients of this letter probably took great comfort in this because for them, the potential of being put to death was imminent. Like, they, they knew that I don't have tomorrow promised. They were dealing, you know, with, the, with Nero. They were dealing with heavy persecution, as Paul said, like, like sheep being led to the slaughter Daily. We, we live in a culture where we don't kind of function that way. We, we kind of like, death is just way out there. You know we, we hide it, but, but we need to kind of recognize that there is an eternal peace, and there's an eternal hope, and there's an eternal kingdom, and there's a new heaven and a new earth, and in a certain sense, we're already citizens of it. Citizens of the new heaven and the new earth are part of that glorious and strong and unshakable kingdom because it is built upon Christ himself. He is the cornerstone of it. And I might add here that our citizenship in this new heaven and new earth so far, so far away from leading us into an ineffective floaty, otherworldliness should make us strong, secure, joyful, confident, bold, and a blessing to the current world in which we live. That's a, I'm going to tell you, it's a pet peeve of mine when people have a religious conviction that completely alienates them from what's going on here right now. Palpable, touchable, observable. There's this kind of, you know, like I said, the word floatiness comes to mind. And your, your Christian life, even though its genesis comes from that which is another, should not be non-existent in terms of that which others see. For, um, for years, we had a ministry... Um, when I was a youth pastor, a long time ago, to a certain orphanage in Mexico, we'd load up our van and drive to this orphanage. And we'd get, you know, we had this church van and we'd and, uh, put food and clothes and toys and supplies, right? And we'd get up early and drive across the border. And the young woman who was spearheading this, who it's not in the notes, but was Julie Herzl. Um, you know, she was probably still in college at the time. Uh, then her name was Drink Ward. She was the one who spearheaded this. She had a real relationship with, uh, with that orphanage. But I remember Julie making a comment one time, because we'd go to this orphanage. I mean, it was just poverty-stricken, right? And we'd show up in this van and just unload all sorts of stuff. And I remember Julie kind of going, I wonder what these kids think in terms of where we came from, that we could sh- drive down here and open up this van and have all this loot. Like, what, like where are you guys from? You know, imagine a four-year-old who d- d- has never owned a pair of shoes. They don't have hardly any food. They don't have two nickels to rub together. And then the church van shows up, and all, all the teenagers come out, and Julie and me and Mick and... All of a sudden, it's like, here's a bunch of stuff. And she she would be like, what do they think of where we live that we could do this? You see, in one sense, we came from America, you know, well, I guess North America. In one sense, we came from the United States. The United States has always been historically a pretty prosperous nation. Matter of fact, a lot of people would say, hey, this nation has been a blessing to the world. A lot of people view the United States that way. I kind of am one of them. But I think it's only been a blessing to the world because of the influence of the Christian faith upon this nation. And when the influence of the Christian faith wanes from this nation, we, don't, we should not think that this nation will be a blessing to the world. Because ultimately, the blessing that those kids were experiencing in the deeper sense, wasn't coming from the United States. It was coming from the kingdom of God. And when we lose that, we lose everything. There's a great mistake people make when it comes to the kingdom of God, when it comes to this idea of a new heaven and a new earth and who we are in it. I even hear this error from seminary students. It's just kind of a way that's being taught. When we speak, and you know, in our church, we're very much into Christ and culture as a church. We we do believe that that the Christian faith should have an impact upon the culture in which we live, and that is not always uh, embraced, even in the Reformed community, in terms of like you know, culture wars and what have you. And I will hear seminary students, and they've they've been they've visited our church, and they will they'll raise their hand when they hear us talking about the kind of effect the church should have upon the world. And they'll raise their hand and they'll quote Jesus from John 18, 36, and they'll say, but Pastor Paul, didn't Jesus say my kingdom is not of this world? You understand kind of what they're being taught here. What they're being taught is my kingdom is not of this world means that my kingdom is not in this world. Or they're being taught that my kingdom should have a negligible effect upon the world. But of course, Jesus isn't saying that at all. Jesus is saying my kingdom is not of this world. He's not saying it's not in the world. He's not saying it's not having an effect upon the world. And yet somehow we read that in such a way as to go, no, no, there's something entirely different taking place here. That van that we took was not of, if I can put it this way, just so you understand the point, it did not originate in that little orphanage in Mexico. That, that van was of, if you will, the United States, All right? We loaded it up. And that's where it began. That was kind of the beginning point. And again, I think the beginning point really was the kingdom of God. But we were in Redondo Beach loading it up. That's where we came from. That's where we were of. But when we drove down to Rosarita and we stopped at the orphanage, it was our prayer very much that it would have an effect upon those children. It was in Rosarita. It wasn't of Rosarita, but it was in Rosarita. And it was having an effect upon Rosarita. And I think we need to think that way in terms of our citizenship in heaven. As Christians, we should, and I want to push this metaphor too far, but we all should be vans filled with blessings for the world in which we live. And not just hamburgers and hot dogs and chicken and toys, but even as Jason was saying, you know, the message of the gospel, the truth, the wisdom of God. Like we are all vans and, you know, the door opens. And I do pray that every one of us view ourselves as having a responsibility to be a blessing to the world in which we live. Philip Schaff writes of the magnitude of these blessings. He wrote this, Religion is not a single separate sphere of life, but the divine principle by which the entire man is to be pervaded, refined, and made complete. It takes hold of him in his undivided totality, in the center of his personal being, to carry light into his understanding, holiness into his will, and heaven into his heart and to shed thus the sacred consecration of the new birth and the glorious liberty of the children of God in his whole inward and outward life no form of existence can withstand the renovating power of God's spirit there is no rational element that may not be sanctified no sphere of natural life that may not be glorified we we are to be that the Christian faith is uh, something God is doing in you for you to do for others. It doesn't, it doesn't stop with you. You know, we're talking about spiritual gifts, right? And We haven't talked a lot about spiritual gifts recently, but the gift isn't for me. If I have a spiritual gift, the gift isn't for me. It is given to me to give to somebody else. We should be a kingdom of re-gifters. Right? We get something, it's used for the mutual edification of the saints, for others. And moving, you know, to finish up here, because we've talked about the new heavens and the new earth, and we talked a little bit about Jerusalem, but the heart of this is the new Jerusalem. That's the heart of all of this. The old Jerusalem it had become like the world. The, the, the Apostle Paul, and I hope we can appreciate the fighting words that he's using here in Galatians, he's talking about the Jerusalem that now is. In other words, that physical nation of Jerusalem at the time of that writing, he said, they are like the children of Hagar. All right, now, if we really understood our Old Testaments, we would recognize what an insult that would be to the Israelite to say, you know, you guys are children of Hagar. You know who Hagar's son was, right? Ishmael. Look, they're still fighting to this day. Right? <laughs> that little mistake that Abraham made 3,000 years ago, there's still wars in the Middle East. They still don't get along. But Paul's going, look at, you know what? You are not an Israelite. You're an Ishmaelite. The Jerusalem that now is. They were in bondage with their children. Bondage is the nature of all man-made religions, whether they call themselves religions or something that sounds more sophisticated than religion, you know, a philosophy of life or what have you. But there is a different freedom-bearing Jerusalem. Paul put it this way, but the Jerusalem above Right, this this new Jerusalem is free, and she is our mother. Not not the one in the borders, the Jerusalem above. Now again, I, I read this and I think you know freedom. You know, the truth shall set you free. This idea of freedom or liberty, it is a very common biblical motif. Right, this idea of being set free. I mean, it goes all the way back to the exodus, right? They were in bondage. God set them free. I mean, I just, let me see if I can just throw this out to you in such a way for you to understand kind of at least my heart when I think of our church. We have, you know, deacons come up here and there's elders who come up here and they'll say things and there's a presentation. Yeah, if we go to a church, you know, churches kind of have a vibe. You know what I'm talking about? Like... Some of them seem friendly, some of them don't seem friendly, some of them seem austere, some of them seem just kind of like hippie-ish. You know, there's all sorts of things, you know. But I, I often think to myself this idea of true liberty, right, my, my yoke, this yoke that we have with Christ, this, this burden is, is light. I often think to myself, will people walk away from our church feeling burdened, constrained, yoked? Will they walk away kind of feeling like, man, if I become part of that church, my life is going to be very, very difficult and I can feel the constraints and the weight of it. And I, I think to myself, I do pray that anybody who would be exposed to our church and our teaching and our ministry and our liturgy would walk away With the joy of knowing that they are citizens of that new heaven, that new earth. They are that new Jerusalem, which gives us freedom. Now, I'm not talking about freedom to sin. I'm not talking, because that's not freedom at all. I'm not talking about this idea that there's no right or wrong, but this idea that you're kind of going, you know what, I've been set free from something that the world has had me in shackles. The world has me in shackles, and those shackles come off in Christ. I mean, you read Matthew 23, what the religious leaders of Israel were doing to their people. Those are some pretty choice words that Jesus is using. He goes, you know what? You religious leaders, you go out, and you're making disciples, and they become twice as much a son of hell as yourself. I mean, the religion had become bad. But there's, there's something In terms of our Christian faith, as hard as we have to work, as much as we have to kind of exercise self-control and do that which is good and love God and love our neighbor and be exercise self-denial and sacrificial, there should be something within our hearts where we go, you know what, I'm free. I'm free from what the world wants me to be. I'm free from who the world is telling me I am. And I'm a citizen of an eternal kingdom, my eternity That's where there is true freedom. And we need to think that way. There is no true peace found. There's no true freedom found in any city or nation, even the city whose name means city of peace, Jerusalem. The name means foundation of peace, city of peace, and it had become anything but that. No, there's a new Jerusalem. This is the passage, right? There's a new Jerusalem. And I'm going to argue that this new Jerusalem, that was the city that Abraham was actually looking for. You know, if you read the Old Testament, right, God says to Abraham, you know, leave where you are, go to where I tell you to go. And he's doing all this stuff, traveling around the Middle East. Go to this land, go to that land. I'm going to give you this land and go to that land. But when we get to the New Testament, especially Hebrews where the author of Hebrews is kind of going, you guys don't understand the Old Testament. Abraham wasn't really concerned about that land. Oh, did he have to go to that land? Yeah, he went to that land. He was, you know, he sought to be obedient. But in Hebrews 11.10, we read this. For he, that was Abraham, was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And by the way, we're not merely in that city. In a certain sense, we are that city. Here's, by the way, an example where the the semiotics of Revelation force us away from kind of a wooden literalism with people. When people say, oh, you got to take Revelation literally, we've already talked about how almost impossible that is. But here's one, because you've got this new Jerusalem, right? It's a city. We'll get into more details later in other sermons. It's a city, but what is it also? It's a bride. I mean, how are you going to draw a picture of that? A city with a wedding gown on? Like, what does that look like in terms of a picture? So he's combining two images here. One is a city, and one is a bride. And it should not be confusing to us when we hear about a bride. When we read about a bride in the Bible, what are we reading about? Yeah, it's the church. It's you. It's me. The life of a church, or the life, your life, my life, the life of a Christian, as it were, is like the aisle of a wedding. And that aisle, walking down that aisle, is a voyage of sanctification. You know, you, the, the door swings open, and, you know, the bride already is dressed in white, right? And yet, as you're walking down the aisle... That is a a picture of the husband, who in this case is Christ, but by the way, it should be husbands as well, washing her with the water of the word that she might be holy, without spot, without wrinkle, without blemish. And at the consummation, which is at the end of the aisle, at the end of this processional, she has ultimately been cleansed and she is pure. And in the consummation... She is without sin by the blood of Christ. I tell you, it's quite the challenge for husbands who are called to live and die for their wives the way Christ lived and died for the church. It's a heavy thing. The washing of the water with the word And at the end of this, at the end of all of this, even though, even though right now, if you will, as the bride of Christ, we're dressed in white, and when God sees us, He sees as it were the righteousness of Christ. It is so. She's you get the image here. She's already dressed in white, walking down the aisle, but by the time she gets all the way down to the end, at the end of the processional, she's actually been completely sanctified in glory. Now we're going to speak more of the tabernacle of God with men in our next meeting for now. Let us be assured that by faith, I mean, how do you know that you're part of that bride? By faith, we are cherished members of his body. Let us know now, right now, as we sit here, That we are called to recognize and to take comfort that our true identity is in that new heaven, in that new earth, wherein righteousness dwells. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that as uh, the distractions of this world seem to want to win our heart, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life, all these shiny things, Father, that we would never lose sight of the fact that our true citizenship is in the new heavens and the new earth, and that we are, in fact, Father, that bride adorned, as it were, by the grace of God through the victory of Christ to be cleaned, to be sanctified, to be made holy without blemish, help us to rejoice in who we are in Christ, and may that affect every last single decision, every move we make in this life. To your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.